go ahead and get started. Um, we have homework assignment is due today. And actually, I did look at it afterwards, and I'd actually covered all the stuff last time. So the stuff I'm covering today isn't actually on the homework. So you're good with that if you haven't, uh, ha uh, haven't, haven't looked at it yet or haven't started some of the last few questions. I've gone over everything that I will cover pretty much that goes through that material. So you have, if, you have, if you're turning in a printed copy, of course, turn it in here to me. If you're going to submit it uh, up on D2L, you've got till 6 o'clock tomorrow morning before it's late. Uh, Hopefully, I will get through them and get them back to you on Monday this time so you have them to study. So you'll actually have them to, have them to look at at that point since we've got a little bit of time uh, between the homework and the exam this time. So that means homework today. Next time, I do want to see your solar observations again. So again, just a copy of your data sheet. Just give me another copy of that by next time, um, and I'll get, I'll get that. And then a week from today, we do have the second exam. I'm not going to write down the whole structures of it again. It's the same as it was the last time. Um, is it 30 multiple choice questions, uh, et cetera, and then the same types of essays that were there based on just these last uh, three units that we've done. So chapter five on light and matter and spectra, chapter six on telescopes and other astronomical instruments, and then chapters 15 and 16 on the sun. And we'll finish up 16 today. 16 won't take us that long to get through. So we'll be ready with all that today. And then Monday, that means we will start our next unit on the stars. So I'll actually jump ahead to the stars. And then in preparation for the exam, we'll be on Wednesday. If you haven't done the review quizzes, they are all active. And will remain so until 8.30 on the 9th, which is the time of the exam. So if you haven't taken them, take them at least once so you get at least some credit. Yeah? Are the review quizzes just in D2L? Or? Just in D2L, right. yeah. Yeah, you just go into D2L for each of those lessons, for each of those chapters, and the review quiz will be linked to right. right there. You can just click on it and take it. The first time is what counts for credit. After that, then you, know, you can keep practicing with it. And again, with those, the review quizzes, the questions are a little more generic based on the textbook. The ones I pick, I tend to focus. So the, the, they're, they're the same bank of questions, but I focus them when I pick them for the exam. So you may see some things there that I didn't talk about as much or that I didn't emphasize in the class. That's just the whole test bank for the review quiz. But it gives you a chance to go through. And again, you can look at those. You can take them once. You can take them 10. You can take them 50 times. You know, eventually, you'll see every question that's, that's possible there. All right, questions. All right. Whoops, wrong one. That one to close it. Close. All right, so picture of the day for today is jumping ahead a little bit. We'll actually get to this stuff after the exam and the break coming up. Uh, this is the uh, molecular clouds or several little pieces of molecular clouds within the Carina Nebula. Now, the Carina Nebula is a big star-forming region. As I recall, last time we saw a little image of the Orion Nebula or a whole constellation of Orion. Well, Orion is a star-forming region. It's a lot closer to us uh, than this, so it looks a lot bigger. This one is much further away, about what is it, four or five times further away. But it's a much, much larger star-forming region. And that's what we're seeing kind of in a zoomed-up image here, looking at just one small section of that, is where stars are forming. That's what these globules are. So within this, th this isn't going to become a star, but this is like the cocoon around the star. This is the big, dusty cocoon. And at the center of that somewhere, you can have star or stars forming. So sometimes there could be a couple stars forming within these. Now, if we could look at them in the infrared, infrared longer wavelength penetrates through the dust, lets us look into that, and we could see these stars that are beginning to form. So with infrared, we could see them in visible light. We just see these dark globules. And over time, tens of thousands, 100,000 years, they will begin to emerge out of those globules, and we will actually begin to see, you'd begin to see new stars forming there. Once they form, they're very hot. They will eat away at the rest of this material. So it's, like, it's, a, it's a battle 
Whether the stars form quickly enough, some of these bright stars that form, do they eat away at the material with their radiation pushing material away? Do they eat away at these clumps before the star gets to form? Or does another star form first, which kind of continues the process? You form another star here, that starts to eat away at the material around it. So it all depends on how dense the area is. Right? The denser it is, the harder it is to be able to eat away at that. And those are quoted the little globs where we're probably going to see stars in the next 100,000 years or so. All right, questions? Okay, then, we will go ahead and look at our last chapter, and then we can go ahead and get started on our lab. We'll see how long this takes. Uh, let's see, slideshow. So... We looked last time at the exterior of the sun, the outer layers, and how that affects the Earth. Now we're going to look at the interior. So where is the sun producing all this energy? If you remember the one thing I told you at the beginning of chapter 15, the last chapter on the sun, was that most of the sun is just an energy transport mechanism. It's not, for, it's not creating any energy. It's transporting energy that formed in the core, that's what we're going to look at today, and gets it to the outside. Now we want to go down and look at that core. How is the sun producing energy? And just like I talked about, we didn't understand what the sun was made up of 100 years ago. We didn't understand how the sun worked 100 years ago. A lot of, I mean, our understanding of nuclear physics has been, a lot, a lot of that's been in the last 100 years to really be able to understand how the details upon how it's working. So we know that the sun cannot be burning as traditionally we burn, burn a lump of coal, burn a piece of wood. That is not what the sun could be doing. You could calculate out how much energy the sun is giving off and figure out how, how long it could last. You know, we knew things at that point. We could figure out how big the sun was. We could figure out the mass of the sun. Right? We had Kepler's laws. We could figure out the mass of, of it. But... So we could figure out how much material there was, and it would last a few thousand years. So not long enough when we know that the sun, the earth, is billions of years old. So how do we, how do we, how do we go get those two? How do we get those two together? So we needed to be able to find some better energy source that would be able to do this. And one thing we know is the conservation of energy that we can convert energy from one form to another, but you can't create or destroy energy. So there are some things that you can do that helped a little bit with this for a while until we really started to get the understanding of how old the Earth was. We know that the Earth is four and a half billion years old now, but back in the 1800s, we had a lesser understanding of how really old the Earth actually is. So one of, the, one of the things that actually worked back in the mid-1800s was the thought of gravitational contraction. This was done by two astronomers, Kelvin and Helmholtz, which suggested that the sun could contract. It could take gravitational energy. The further you are away from the center, the more gravitational energy you have, and convert it into heat. And that could heat up the sun. Now... That's the same thing that if I lift something up above the Earth's surface, right, this has more gravitational energy than it does when it's sitting down on the table. If I let it go, crash, it releases that energy. It converts it to the energy of motion, speed, and then it stops. It still has to convert that energy to something. You can't just lose the energy. It has energy up here because of its position. It has energy when I let go of it because of its motion. It still, the energy still has to be there. It turns into heat. It warms up. My pad of papers, it warms up the table a tiny bit. So the energy is still there. So if the sun were slightly contracting, it doesn't have to be very much. It's about 40 meters per year. And that's a pretty decent amount, but it's not necessarily a noticeable amount. Could account for the energy and could power the sun for 100 million years. So over the course of a lifetime, 40, million, 40 meters per year, you're talking about you know, four kilometers in 100 years. You wouldn't notice it. So you wouldn't, I mean, remember, this, the sun is going to be 
1.4 million kilometers, all you're changing is by four kilometers out of that. It's such a tiny fraction, you would not notice the sun shrinking. So it would be unnoticeable. It would give the sun enough energy for 100 million years and would give us enough to power, based on what the age of the Earth was at the time, that would help. We knew that 6,000 years wouldn't help, or a few thousand years wouldn't help, in a traditional burning sense, but this would, 100 million years. That powered things. However, now we know the Earth is four and a half billion years old. Well, if the sun, how can the Earth be four and a half billion years old and the sun be only 100 million years old? There's a big difference between those two. What kept us around before that? What kept us heated long before the sun, if that's the case? So it all came down to uh, this gentleman, who I'm sure you recognize, Albert Einstein, um, who gave us the idea, we talk about conservation of energy, that you can't create energy or destroy energy, and what Einstein gave us is the idea that mass is just another form of energy. Mass is just a very compact storage unit for energy. Mass and energy are really the same thing. So you can convert matter into energy, you can also convert energy into matter. They can convert back and forth. And right, the one equation everybody's always heard of, E equals mc squared. Einstein's great equation, which says that energy and matter are related, and they're related by a constant given by the speed of light, which is c squared. And what that means is that you can take a little tiny amount of mass and convert it to a lot of energy. So if you take a small number here, Speed of light's a big number. Square it, it's even bigger. It turns to a tremendous amount of energy. So a paper clip, take a little paper clip, convert it to energy, that's 15,000 barrels of oil worth of energy if you could convert it all to energy. It's a very comp a compact way to store energy. Now, how do you convert all that to energy is not something that's easy to do. You had an anti-paper clip, right? antimatter, matter and antimatter, that's one way to be able to go about doing it. But the thing you can't just use it for is that there's no easy way to convert something from, uh, from matter into energy. But it doesn't take a lot of material to be able to do that. You can create a tremendous amount of energy out of very, very small amounts of matter. And that was the idea that Einstein gave us, but it took... He gave us this back in the early 1900s, but it still took decades after to really get the understanding of what it meant and how did this work? How, could you, how can the sun go about converting matter into energy? But if it could, boy, that's, that solves the supply problem for the sun because you don't need to convert a lot of mass to energy to be able to power the sun. If that little paper clip is giving us enough energy to give us 15,000 barrels of oil, then you, know, you can imagine what more matter could do and could easily power the sun for many billions of years. And in fact, what we'll find out is that the sun has a 10 billion year lifespan. It's about halfway through it right now, 10 billion years. It's, it has enough fuel there to be able to last that long. So going back a little bit, talking about some elementary particles. And I talked about matter and antimatter, and that's what's kind of shown here. The one side, matter. The other side is antimatter. So we talked about the atoms. We talked about protons, positively charged, neutrons, negatively charged, elect or sorry, neutrons, neutrally charged, not negatively charged, uh, and electrons, which are negatively charged. But each of these has an antiparticle. So you have an electron. You can also have what is called a positron. Positron is exactly like an electron, except it has a positive charge. Its mass is the same, its size is, everything else is the same about it. It's just the charge that's different, and it's a different particle. It's not the same, it's not an electron with a positive charge. It is a specific type of particle that is like an electron. So it is the antiparticle of that. The same thing with the proton. Protons have positive charge. If you have antimatter, the protons have negative charge. So if you lived in a world of antimatter, the nuclei would be negative, 
and the electrons would be positive. Now, we don't have a lot of antimatter around for very good reason, um, because it will annihilate matter. So if you think about it, sometimes they get into it with the science fiction, you know, you have the paper clip and the anti-paper clip, it doesn't matter. If I had a paper clip made of antimatter, none of us would be here right now because it would be annihilating with all of the atoms in the atmosphere. All it takes is an electron and an anti-electron colliding together. They annihilate and convert, en convert to energy. The protons and antiprotons would, would combine together and create energy immediately. So antimatter, it's not just you know, an anti-me and an, uh, me and an anti-me that would collide. Anything would, any matter and any antimatter. So almost all the universe, everything that we study and that we're going to study is made up of ordinary matter. But there are some cases of antimatter, and we'll take a look at those. But this is the most efficient way to get energy. So matter and antimatter combined together, you know, a paper, if you could, could in some kind of controlled situation, put a paper clip and an antimatter worth materials worth of paper clip material together, you could get all that energy out of it. So this is where the sun is going to get its energy. Neutrons have the same. Neutrons have... Uh, anti-neutrons as well. Uh, that gets a little more into the subatomic physics of how neutrons are put together. Uh, neutrons and protons are actually made up of quarks, so it's the actual quarks inside them that are different because there's no difference in charge. A neutron is neutral, an anti-neutron is neutral. So it's not just the charge, there's actually differences within the subatomic within the neutron. They aren't the simplest versions of matter. There's actually smaller particles that make them up. So I just want to put that as an aside because usually it's looked at positive and negative and positive and negative. So neutrons would be the same. No, there are neutrons and antineutrons as well. There's another type of uh, particle that we're going to look at and we'll come back to look at in the next section today, and that is the neutrino. The neutrino was proposed to exist many decades ago 60, 70 years ago? It's been a while. Because some nuclear reactions, when we started studying nuclear reactions, some of them looked like they were losing energy. You'd calculate the energy that went in, you'd calculate the energy that came out, energy was missing. More so than it could be accounted for. If there's any mass changes, you take all that into account, there was, still there was still some energy missing. And that's where we came up with the idea of a neutrino. A neutrino was a theoretical particle had not been detected that was to account for this energy so that energy was conserved because we believe strongly in the conservation of energy. Where is the energy? Energy can't just be created or destroyed. You can tra transfer it from one form of energy to another. You can transform it from matter to energy, but you just can't get rid of some energy. So they were essentially, and they were difficult to detect. They were nearly massless, very tiny amount of mass, they were neutral, so they didn't have an electrical charge. And they also didn't like to interact with anything. They're the antisocial particles. They don't want to interact with anything else. And in fact, we know now that there are billions of neutrinos streaming through us every second from the sun. They don't affect us. They go right through the earth. And that's night and day. So even when the sun's up, they come through us. But guess what? When the sun's down, they come through the earth, and they still come through us. They don't interact with anything. So it doesn't really matter. They rarely, rarely interact with anything else. But they're there and they're needed to be able to account for the energy, make sure that we're not losing any energy. They have since been detected. We have detected them now. Originally, they were a theoretical particle. We have been able to detect them over the last couple of decades. So what is the sun doing? This, there's two types of nuclear reactions that you have. You have nuclear fission nuclear fusion. Nuclear fission is what we use here on Earth for the most part. Uh, that takes large atoms, so a nuclear power plant takes large atoms, things like uranium or plutonium, and splits them into smaller atoms. When you do that and you take the mass of the atoms that went in, it's a little bit bigger than the mass of the atoms that comes out. Not a big difference, a very small difference, but it's a, it's a difference. And remember, that little difference in mass multiplied by the speed of light squared gives you the energy. So this would be the nuclear power plant, nuclear weapons. This would be what they're using. They're splitting high, energy, uh, high mass atoms at the very one end of the periodic table into somewhat lower mass 
atoms. Now, this could have been useful for the stars, except that, you know, we learned Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, we talked about last time, told us what the stars are made up of. They're almost all hydrogen and helium. They're not made up of uranium and plutonium, so there isn't a large amount of this for them to be able to use nuclear fission. But it is the one we use here on Earth. Nuclear fusion, on the other hand, works the other way. It takes light atoms and fuses them into heavier atoms. It does the same thing. If you add up the mass of the atoms going in and those coming out, what's going in had a little bit more mass. What comes out had a little bit less mass. You lost a little tiny bit of mass going through that. And that gets converted to energy. So you take light atoms. In this case, it's going to be hydrogen. When we look at other stars, we'll talk about, as stars evolve, we'll look at cases where other uh, things are converted. But for right now, hydrogen into helium is what the sun, the sun is doing. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Splitting things apart is a lot easier. If you want to split apart uranium atoms, you can just bombard them with neutrons. They'll split apart, and they'll form some free neutrons, and you get a chain reaction. If you control it with control rods and, and things, and they have the right type of materials, then you have a nuclear power plant. You can generate energy. You have some control rods that can keep that reaction under control. If you have specific types of uranium or plutonium, then the reaction can be runaway and can be a massive explosion re releasing all that energy at once. But they're two quite different things. You know, a nuclear power plant can't turn into a nuclear bomb no matter what happens with it runaway. You could have a runaway nuclear reactor. It could melt down, but it couldn't uh, actually explode in a nuclear weapon because it's the wrong type of uranium. It wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so one of the problems with it, with being able to do nuclear fusion, why don't we use it here on Earth? Hydrogen's going to be a lot easier to find than uranium. It's going to be a lot more. We've got hydrogen in the water. So you've got all sorts of hydrogen around, very easy to find. The, one of the problems is, is that when you try to fuse two protons together, the nuclei of a hydrogen atom, this one's got a positive charge and this one has a positive charge. If you bring positive charges close together, there's an electrostatic force that repels them and pushes them apart. So you can't get them close enough together so that they'd actually stick. You need really high temperatures. High temperatures, things are moving fast. So when you have those really high temperatures, the particles are moving faster. They'll get closer together before they repel. So if you get things at thousands of degrees, they get to some distance. Get up to millions of degrees, they get closer. Get them up to at least 10 million degrees, and you can get them close enough that they will actually stick together. Why do they stick together? We have a positive charge and a positive charge. I just told you they repel each other. How can you put two positive charges together? We know that we can, right? Because we wouldn't be here otherwise. Because we're made up of carbon atoms. Right? Carbon wouldn't exist. Carbon has six protons in its nucleus. There's actually another force involved that's stronger than the electromagnetic force. So the electromagnetic force within a carbon nuclei is trying to make every carbon atom in your body explode push them apart. But there's what we call the strong nuclear force, which when you get those nuclei real close together is much stronger. It's weak over big distances. It's really strong when you get things close enough together. So essentially, you've got to get them close enough together to overwhelm the electromagnetic force trying to push them apart. And then you can get them to stick together. So you have that. You need the high temperature. You need a very high density as well. I mentioned that with the corona last time. Temperature of the corona is a couple million degrees, not quite enough for nuclear reactions. But that's not the biggest thing that keeps it there. The big thing is that it has very low density. The particles aren't close enough together. You've got to have really high densities, lots of particles close together, moving at high speeds, in order to have this reaction occur. And how this occurs is by a method we call the proton-proton chain. And it's not just one step. Essentially, what you're doing in the end is you're taking four hydrogen atoms. In the case of the center of the sun, when you're at 15 million degrees, when I say hydrogen atoms, hydrogen nuclei, I'd say exactly the same. Their atom is just the nucleus. The electrons are just floating around. At 15 million degrees, it's much too hot for electrons to remain bound to the atoms. 
So you're taking four hydrogen atoms here in the red and converting them into one helium atom. That's where all the energy comes from. If you add up the mass of four hydrogen atoms, calculate that, you'll find out that there's a little tiny difference between that and four helium atoms. Four helium atoms weigh a little bit less than, well, one helium atom weighs a little bit less than four hydrogen atoms. So that's the next step. The next step is that we're going to take four hydrogen nuclei and fuse them into one helium nucleus. Trying to get four hydrogen nuclei coming together all at the same time at the same space isn't going to happen. Not at these kind of temperatures and densities. So you, it, it occurs in steps. And that's what's shown here. The first step is just two hydrogen atoms getting close enough together that they stick. One of them gets converted into a neutron, so you have two protons here. They collide together and stick. You end up with one proton and one neutron stuck together. So, one thing that changed. Proton is positively charged. One positive charge, two positive charge. Coming out, one positive charge. Just like mass and energy, charge is conserved. You can't just, you can't just destroy charge. Electrical charge is one of those fundamental uh, things of nature, you, so you can't destroy it. There has to be some other positive charge coming out. That's this little white ball here. The little white ball is a positron, anti-electron. So the sun is forming antimatter in its core. Every time this reaction occurs, it forms a positron. We're safe here on Earth because how do they get out of the sun? They're going to find an electron and annihilate each other immediately. So there's where a chunk of the energy is coming from, is this, this positron right there forms, has to form from the positive charge. You take a positive charge and a negative charge, combine them together, energy. So you had zero charge to start off with because you had positive and negative, and you end up with zero charge. So everything works out there. So that's the first step. You form the positron, but in order to balance the energy in total, you need that neutrino. We'll come back to that in the next chapter. But that neutrino comes out, and that's really important for understanding what's going on in the first stage. Now, the second step, so first step, you're forming, I didn't call that, I didn't name it, I named it hydrogen. It's actually called deuterium. Deuterium is just a hydrogen nucleus with one proton and one neutron. So if you recall from previous, that's an isotope of hydrogen. It's hydrogen because it has one proton. It's a heavier version of hydrogen because it has a proton and a neutron. So the next step, after we form that, we take that deuterium and combine it with a hydrogen nucleus. So those two combine together. There's a little bit of mass loss that produces some energy in the form of a gamma ray that comes out. Again, the sun is producing all this really intense radiation. It's producing antimatter, it's producing gamma rays. This is all down in its core, we can't see it. That doesn't get out to the surface, it's under that big blanket of the rest of the sun. But that forms helium. Not ordinary helium, we call helium-3. It's an isotope of helium, it has two protons, that makes it helium, but it only has one neutron and not two. So we form helium there, uh, first form of helium, but then to get helium that we know, you actually combine two of these together, those combine, you take two protons, two neutrons that have formed. There's one helium nucleus, nice stable helium that we use here on Earth to fill up balloons. And then the other two protons just go out and continue this cycle. So the process is going on, and it's going on billions and billions of times every single second within the sun. So it's a very, very quick process. So these go around, they start the whole process again. So in net, what happens? is you take four hydrogen nuclei, you form a helium nucleus, and you produce some energy. That energy can be in the form of a positron, which annihilates with an, with an electron. It can be in the form of gamma rays. It can be in the form of neutrinos. But the total amount of energy, the total amount of mass and energy that you had here is the same as what you end up with. So how does it give us energy? It's not a very efficient process. I talk about efficiency, you want 50, 60, 70% efficient. Well, the mass of a helium nucleus is 0.71% less than the mass of the four hydrogen nuclei. 
you're not converting all of it to mass. It's not a very efficient conversion, right? If you had, if you had all matter and antimatter combining together, that would be 100%, or very close to 100% efficiency. Here, it's only a tiny fraction of a percent. But there's so much hydrogen and helium that you can imagine, I give you the example here, that if you could take one kilogram of hydrogen and convert it to helium, gives you some amount of energy that would power us electrically for two weeks. One kilogram of hydrogen, if you could convert that to helium. That's not annihilating the hydrogen. That's annihilating the hydrogen give you even more. Remember that paper clip gives you all sorts of energy. This is a kilogram, this is a lot more. It's a good amount of hydrogen but you could actually power the US, the US for two weeks in terms of electrical supply with one kilogram of hydrogen, what the sun is doing. So that's a lot of energy that the sun is producing. Of course, the sun's giving off a lot of energy. Remember, we only get a small little fraction of it, our little cross section sitting out in the depths of the solar system. That's the only energy we get, but the sun is putting out that energy all around. So the sun is putting out a lot of energy and it's all produced by this process. It only takes that little tiny bit of mass difference because E equals mc squared. Multiply that by the speed of light squared and all of a sudden you've got a lot of energy. Even though it's a small mass difference, it's a lot of energy. Now I mentioned one other uh, cycle here. I don't go through it in any detail. In this sec really in this class, I don't go through it in any more detail than just to mention it. Uh, it's called the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle is another way to fuse hydrogen into helium. There are two, so there's two methods. The sun uses the one that I went over, and I'll review it a little bit, talk about it when we talk about stars, but not go into it in any detail. This is used for very high mass stars. This is what they do. They actually use carbon as a catalyst. So the carbon atom, instead of adding the proton, protons together, it's easier to add the proton to a carbon atom. And you build up that carbon atom by, by adding protons to it until you've added four protons. Once you add the fourth proton, it splits off, becomes a helium nucleus, and you have your carbon atom back again. So the carbon just acts as a catalyst, as a way of being able to build up the helium atom. So you kind of build the, atom, build the helium atom on the carbon nucleus, meaning that it goes from carbon to nitrogen to oxygen once you combine everything together and then comes off again. Again, it's another one. I want you to have been aware of it, but I'm not going to go through and show you, you know, this for the carbon cycle, which gets even more complicated. But it is what works for the most massive stars. So when we talk about stars that are many times the mass of our sun, this is what they're using. They're still fusing hydrogen to helium, but they're doing it a little bit differently. All right, so finishing up this section, and then we just got one more to go through today. Uh, we solved the puzzle. How did the sun produce its energy? Well, Einstein told us you can convert mass into energy. Way to get a really large amount of energy out of a small amount of material. And this is what the sun does. It uses what I showed you, the proton-proton chain, by which four hydrogen atoms will become one helium atom. And the mass difference is what is converted to energy. It's only that fraction, less than a percent. So in terms of efficiency, it's not really very good. But then if the sun was a lot more efficient, we wouldn't be here. Right? If it was producing 10 times as much energy, it'd be way too hot on Earth to support life. All right, questions? Otherwise, we're going to look at the other section. Uh, I will tell you, I don't ask you to draw the proton-proton chain on the exam. I'll give you that. You, I might ask you a question about it. I'm not going to say you won't get a question, but that, you don't have to sit there and try to retrace it onto your key point sheets or anything. You, I, won't, I won't ask you to redo that. I'll tell you that in advance. So I won't ask you to do that. And I also won't have you repeat these equations, but I do like to show them. Um, how does the sun produce energy? How can we figure out what's going on in the sun? And how can we figure out what the interior of the sun is like? We can't see it any more than we can see the interior of the Earth or anything else. So how do we figure out what the sun is like? So astronomers use these, these, these set of four equations. Again, you don't have to copy them down onto your key points or anything. I'm not going to ask you to reproduce them. But there are equations that exist that can tell you about the temperature, the pressure, the luminosity, and the mass contained within, at each level of the sun. So if you solve all of these, and this is what some astronomers will do who study structure of stars, will solve all of these, and they will then tell you what the star should be like 
Well, you have a comparison. You can solve all these equations as you work from the center of the sun outward, and then it makes a prediction. What should the total mass of the star be? What should the luminosity of the star be? What should the temperature of the star be? If you're not right, you can go back and tweak your equations a little bit, tweak the center, in center values to make them match. So that means we're looking at the exterior layers, using these equations and working backwards to figure out what is the temperature like at the center of the sun. So it's a way we can actually go about calculating that. So it's all, it's all done by computers, of course. You do that, you set, up a, you set up your starting points, and you calculate the model from the center to the surface. So just like any scientific uh, process, it's an ongoing process. You keep modifying them to figure out what's going, on, what's going on in the center of the sun. So we can learn things about how the mass is distributed within the sun. That's what the mass is telling, the mass equation will tell us. It tells us how much mass. If you start, at the start you know, one kilometer out from the center of the sun, how much mass is in that kilometer? Then you go out to two kilometers. Now how much mass is in that two kilometers? And you can figure out how the mass is distributed. Where is it denser? Where is it less dense? The sun isn't a uniform ball. It's really dense at the center and very low density when you get to the out outer layers. So that's one of the ways we can actually use to do, the, to do this. Some of the things we have to consider that are involved in this is that the sun is nice and stable. Its temperature has been the same for billions of years, plus or minus a tiny bit, but very, very close. And we know that. We know that the temperature hasn't been twice as hot. We wouldn't be here. If the sun were to get twice as hot, that would be hot enough to boil our oceans and vaporize our atmosphere, and we'd all be gone. We know that the sun hasn't gotten twice as cold. Right? All of a sudden, it would be ice age all the way down to the equator. So, and all the oceans would be freezing. So we know that the temperature has been really stable for billions of years, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And what that means is that the sun is in a complete state of balance. Gravity is always pulling down. Gravity pulls down every object, right? Gravity is trying to pull me to the center of the earth, it's trying to pull you to the center of the earth, it's trying to pull the building, unless there's some pressure, some force that pushes up against us. The floor, right? The ground, the ground surface of the earth pushes up against us and balances that. So the sun is in a perfect state of balance. There is gravity is trying to collapse it down to a black hole, something we'll talk about later this month. So it's trying to collapse it down to a point, but there has to be, so there has to be some kind of force pushing outward that exactly balances that. And that's the force of the nuclear reactions in the core. I mean, you could think of it as the energy of, you know, millions of millions of nuclear bombs going off every single second in the center of the sun. That's what's needed to balance the gravity trying to pull it down. So that amount of energy that's being produced there goes into keeping the sun completely stable. And it has done this for billions of years. So I mentioned a couple of the things here. Uh, the sun is a plasma meaning that once you get to the interior, atoms don't have the same meaning that atoms have to us, that atoms are ions. All the electrons are removed. I said it might be hard to do that. How do you get all of the electrons off an iron atom? Well, if you get it up to 15 million degrees, you can remove those 26 electrons. If you get it hot enough. Surface of the sun, no, but in the interior, it's completely ionized. So you have... Nu nu nuclei floating around and you have electrons floating around. And it behaves like a gas all the way to the center. There's no solid portion at the center of the sun. Everything, whether it be iron or whether it be hydrogen, behaves just like a gas. We know, again, I, this is what I mentioned, we know that the surface temperature remains constant. It has to. If, otherwise, we would not be here. If the sun were constantly changing its temperature, you know, 90-degree days could become 180-degree days, and that wouldn't be too pleasant for us outside. You know, 10-degree days could become negative 100-degree days, which also wouldn't be very pleasant for us. So that's what keeps us going, is the fact that the sun's temperature has been very, very constant to a small fraction of a percent over billions of years. You know, we, and we know that, again, because we are still here. I mentioned last time, how do we, how do we transfer the energy we have conduction, uh, sorry, convection and radiation, radiation in close to the core, but that core, that's where the only place the energy is produced. 
transport by radiation, transport by convection, and as I told you last time, no transport by conduction. So we can use what we know. Some of this we learned in the last chapter. Some of it we've just gone over here. But we can use what we know about the sun to then make a model of the interior. So I show you one here. I'm going to show it in another slice this way. So there's just one slice of the sun going down to the core and going outward. And this is what we use those equations to find out. What is the density of the sun like? What is the temperature of the sun like? Well, it's close to 6,000 degrees on the surface, but as you go down, it gets up to 2 million, 7 million, 15 million degrees that when you get down to the core. What is the density like? Well, it's a tiny fraction. It's just a gas up here, very, low, very, very low density. Here, density is still less than that of water, but then you get up to density of metals, and even denser than metals, 150 grams per cubic centimeter. Still hydrogen, still a gas, but it's an incredible density. The only reason it is still a gas is because the temperature is so high. So really high pressures and really high temperatures, those are the kind of things that we need. So why don't we use nuclear fusion here on Earth? Well, this is, this is the conditions you need to be able to do. You've got to be able to produce those really high temperatures and really high pressures and to be able to contain that somehow. So some kind of magnetic containment. There are, there are you know, work that's being done on it, but it's a lot more difficult thing to do than nuclear fission. So what we want to use is observations. How can we match these two? How can we match what we know, what we see on the surface, and try to understand what's going on inside? And in science, we use, our obs use observations. And one that we use is the pulsations of the sun. The sun actually pulsates. And this is a science called helioseismology. Seism seismology on Earth, study of earthquakes, tra transporting through the center of the Earth. Well, guess what? The sun can do the same thing. And there are ways, you can't put seismographs on the surface of the sun to detect sun, but you can watch how it's pulsating. You can watch alternating areas get red and blue shifts and how they travel through from one to the other, and you can then measure what the interior of the sun must be like. Conversely, you can take your models of the interior which tell you what you believe this is like and have it make predictions. What are the pulsations going to look like? Do they match? Great. Keep testing. Do they not match? We've got to fiddle with our conditions at the interior to get everything to match. So the variations that we see depend on how things are distributed, how, the dense, how dense it is. You know, is it 150 grams per cubic centimeter or 140? It's going to give you two different sets of pulsations. Or is it 145? You keep refining it. 145.2. You, know, you keep refining that to get a much, much better answer. And helioseismology is one of those studies that we use that gives us an indirect look at the interior of the sun. So what does the sun look like inside? Well, just like we're never going to see what the interior of the Earth looks like directly, we're not going to see what the sun does, but we can see how it's changed. We can see how, that, how what's in the interior has affected the outside that we can see. We use the parts that we can see. We use this here on Earth to figure out what the interior of the Earth is like. Earthquake occurs, you have seismographs all over the world. They measure the earthquake waves. Right? The earthquake doesn't just occur in one place. The waves travel through the earth. How they travel depends on how the matter is distributed within the earth, whether, what its density is like, whether it's solid or liquid. What is it made up of? Those waves travel differently through different materials. So we can learn about the interior of the earth by studying seismographs. We can learn about the interior of the sun by studying how it pulsates. The way we can get a direct look at the interior of the sun, we've got to come back to those particles that we talked about, and those are the neutrinos. Remember back from the proton-proton chain. That's the first step. That's the first thing to form there. Now, neutrinos are what we call weakly interacting particles. That means they don't like to interact with anything else. They interact through one of the other four forces of nature, We've talked about gravity. I've mentioned the electromagnetic force. I talked to you about the strong nuclear force. Well, there's a strong nuclear force. Guess what? There's a weak nuclear force. They interact through that, but they don't interact with most material. So they can stream, billions of them can stream all the way through the Earth. They could, you could line the sun, between the sun and the Earth with lead. They'd travel right through it. They don't interact with things. They just zip right through almost everything. So they don't interact through gravity. They don't interact through the electromagnetic force. So they travel through the entire sun without doing anything. 
That means if we can find a way to detect them, we can see what the center of the sun was like about eight and a half minutes ago. It's how long it takes light to get from the sun to the earth. So can't, still, still can't know what it's like right now because neutrinos don't travel faster than light, but they, can, but they travel very close to the speed of light. So we could find out what they are like. But we've got to find a way to detect these things that don't like to interact with, any, with anything. There are occasions where, and I'm, I'm vastly overestimating how many interact by saying one in a billion billion, but there is a statistical probability, some small probability that that neutrino will interact if it hits a chlorine atom. What it does is it hits the chlorine atom, converts it into argon, so it actually interacts with it through that weak force, causes a slight nuclear reaction, changes the type of the atom, and then gives off that radioactive argon nucleus decays. When it does that, it gives off a photon of light. That light can be detected. So you get that little flash of light every time this occurs. That's a direct look. If we can figure out how to detect those, we don't need to detect all of them. If you only detect one in a billion billion, you know the probabilities, so you can still figure out what's going on in the sun. What is the probability that each one will interact? Well, if you detect, if it's one in a billion billion, you count how many you detect, and that tells you how many are coming out from the interior of the sun. So it gives us a direct look into the interior. And this is what has been done. Actually, over the last couple of decades, we've built neutrino telescopes to detect these neutrinos. And there's something like this. This is actually one in the mines of South Dakota. So buried down below the surface, you've got a great tank there that's filled with cleaning fluid, chlorine atoms in it. And what that does, first of all, it's done in the mine, in a deep mine, because you're shielding it from other particles that come, from, come through space that would get to the surface of the Earth and would interact and cause false positives on it. So you shield cosmic, cosmic rays, rays that are coming from, the, uh, from space. So that uses the Earth as a shield. Neutrinos don't care. They come right through the sun. They're going to come right through the, this little bit of ground here. And then most of them go right through the tank of material. And what we found when the first observations were made about, what, 15, about 20 years ago or so now, was that we expected a certain number of neutrinos based on how many the sun was producing, what percentage of those should interact, so if the sun produces a billion and we predict one in a billion to interact, it produces a billion a second, and we expect one in a billion to react, then we would expect one flash per second. The sun is producing a billion, 999,999,999, right through it, and that one interacts and we detect it. Again, those are overestimating how many react, but that was the idea, was that we'd say how many flashes should we get a day? What percentage of them will interact? and say we were expecting 100, we were finding more like 30. Now, if you were expecting 100 and you got 95, wouldn't be so bad. But when you say 100 and you get 30, that's like saying you flip a coin 200 times, you'd expect 100 heads and 100 tails. If you got 90 and 110, you probably wouldn't think something was wrong. If you got 30 and 170, you might start to wonder, why is this... What is wrong with this coin that is flipping heads? It's coming ahead such a high percentage of the time. So something is wrong with our, with so, something is wrong somewhere here because we should get a lot closer than detecting one third of them. If our model is correct or if our understanding of the neutrino is correct, we should get a lot closer. Again, we don't expect it to be perfect. If we predict there should be 115 each day and we're getting 110, nobody's going to fuss over that. That's pretty close. But when you predict 100 and you get 30-ish, something is wrong. So there were two possible solutions. Well, with anything in science, right? You have, you, you have your model, you make a prediction, and it's wrong. Well, there are sometimes multiple things that could be wrong. Could our solar models be wrong that I showed you? Does the proton-proton chain not work how I showed you through? Are the temperatures not what we calculate? If the temperatures were cooler... That would mean fewer neutrinos. So maybe, the maybe we didn't understand the interior of the sun. Or did we not understand the neutrino? And what it turns out is that if the neutrino has a tiny amount of mass, it can change its form. There's actually three types of neutrinos. 
And yes, the particle physicists will call them different flavors. They have no different taste to them, but they, flavors is just their way of saying different types. They have different flavors. So the neutrino can oscillate between those if it has a little bit of mass. There's what they call neutrino oscillation. So the different flavors, you know, maybe chocolate can be detected, but vanilla and strawberry can't. Those aren't the actual names for them. But, uh, so one type would be detected. That's what our experiment was designed to detect, the chocolate ones. The vanilla and strawberry ones wouldn't be detected. So what we find for our solution to this, which was found within the last 10 or 15 years, was that we didn't understand the neutrino. The neutrino was a little more, oops, yeah, too much, there we go. In fact, we saw, here we are, about 20 years ago, the first evidence of uh, oscillations of neutrinos. And less than 20 years ago, we found, again, the clear evidence of this. And what they do is they oscillate between their flavors. So even though they're all produced as chocolate neutrinos, by the time they get to Earth, you've got one-third of them chocolate, one-third of them strawberry, one-third of them vanilla, and guess what? We can't detect those two-thirds of them, so we're only supposed to detect one-third of them. We didn't know that when we started the experiments. It's one of those things we learned about by doing the experiment and trying to detect the neutrinos and finding out, wait, something's really wrong here. So either we don't understand the sun or we don't understand the neutrino. So what it did is it did a couple of things. It told uh, you know, particle physicists that we didn't understand the neutrino. We learned something new about the neutrino. But it told solar physicists, solar astronomers, that we do understand this, the interior of the sun that our models at least fit, fit this piece of data, so we understand it better. Does that mean they're exactly perfect? Of course not. Everything, like any scientific theories and models, are constantly subject to revision. But it was a great confirmation and saved a lot of problems because trying to change those temperatures at the center of the sun caused some other big problems. So finishing up here, and I'll let you get on, we'll get on to lab. Uh, again, the model, we use the models to understand the interior. And the observations are what help us to refine these, whether they be the uh, helioseismology or the solar neutrinos. Really, both ways of trying to look at the interior of the sun and to better understand that. All right, questions? <laughs>